Turn your Bibles to Colossians chapter 4. We're continuing to walk through, teach through this wonderful little letter. And we come now to Colossians chapter 4, verses 2 through 6. Colossians 4, 2 through 6. One of the most encouraging sounds in a preacher's life is wrestling Bible papers. And I'm hearing it all over the congregation this morning. What a blessing. Turn in your Bibles. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that the Lord may open to us a door for the Word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. This is God's Word. A little less than a year ago, last December, a man who many people would call the most famous atheist alive, somebody that needs to be or needed to be evangelized, died. His name was Christopher Hitchens. Many of you have heard of his name. He died last December. And as he was dying of cancer, he reflected on the meaning of life. He reflected on life and death. Loved to write, and he wrote and wrote and wrote, even though he was very sick. And just the last couple of weeks, a, a little book has come out that he wrote called Mortality. Fascinating. Fascinating little, little book. And one of the most fascinating sections is right toward the middle where he talks about his correspondences, uh, his correspondence with, with Christian, with Christians, with letters, emails, texts back and forth, talking back and forth, corresponding with Christians. And he calls our attention to a couple of responses that Christians had to his cancer and his death. Um, one response was, he said he got this one all the time, I hope that you die a very slow and painful death and burn eternally in hell. Now, I don't recommend that response to somebody. That's probably not the best thing to say, but Christians said that to him. I hope you burn in hell for your blasphemy. Another response on the flip side that he got, he said this was very common. Many people that called themselves religious or Christians wrote to me and said, we affirm you. It's going to be okay. We will see you in heaven. You're okay. And his response to that, he said, you know, my response to that 
was not much different really at all than the first one. I knew that they weren't being honest with me. I know enough about their Bible to know they weren't being honest with me. We didn't pay much attention to those folks either. But then there was another group that he said wrote to him um, claiming to be Christians. And they said, we're praying for you. We're praying for you. And he wrote back, and if you know anything about him, he's a little cynical. He, he writes back and says, so I'm an atheist. What are you praying for for me? And he said, a group of Christians wrote back and said this, we're praying that you'll be converted to Jesus Christ, that you will be healed of cancer, and that someday we will enjoy and experience Christian fellowship with you. And he said, you know, that moved me. I respected that, especially the ones that came along. Some of them even visited me, came to visit me, and I knew their lives, and I saw it in their lives. It made an impact now. As far as we know, Christopher Hitchens, one of the most famous atheists in the world, never converted to Jesus Christ. And, let's face it, We are not, in our daily lives, when we go out the door and live this week, we're not going to be interacting with the most famous atheists out there. That's not what we experience normally in in, in life. But here's the point. Christopher Hitchens, without knowing it, he's on to something. He's on to something in this little book. He's on to this passage. He's on to Colossians 4 and doesn't know it. Let's look. Here, after Paul has told us about our families, our our marriages, our children, our co-workers, our friends, he says, don't stop there. As he moves into chapter 4, he says, don't stop there. Don't forget those outside. Don't forget those who are outside the church, who don't know and who don't have these blessings that you do. Don't forget about them. And and he gets right to the very essence. You want to know the essence of evangelism? It's right here. And this is as practical and straightforward as Paul, and he's this way quite often, ever gets. Here it is. I think we can legitimately summarize it with three words. Prayer, word, and walk. Prayer, word, and walk. Look how he starts. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. Paul's circumstances, he's writing this letter, is not good. He's in prison. Paul's circumstances, he's in a very terrible, unpleasant, hurtful circumstance, and he doesn't say, pray that I would get out of here so I can get back to doing real ministry. He says, continue steadfastly, be watchful, Pray with praise and thanksgiving. He doesn't say, life is terrible in here. Pray that I get out. 
Paul is saying, don't succumb to to afterthought prayer. Prayer is a last resort. Pray without ceasing. Live a life of prayer. Like the widow in Luke 18 who just keeps coming back in the story that Jesus tells about prayer. The widow just comes back and comes back and comes back and comes back and won't take no for an answer. She keeps coming back. Pray for, he's saying, as he's just talked about families, relationships, all these different relationships. Continue steadfastly in prayer about all of these relationships, all of your relationships, your marriage, your children, your friendships, vocation. But don't forget me. Here's the Apostle Paul in prison saying, please pray for me. Pray for me. Not that the doors of the prison would open, but the doors would open for the word and that I would make the word clear. Now, let's just be honest. Let me ease your mind. Not every one of you is going to be called to be a preacher or a missionary or to stand up in front and evangelize. But every one of you is called to pray for those who do. Every one of you is called to pray for those who do. Every preacher, Joseph and I were talking about this the other day, has this voice in his head on a regular basis that says, they're not listening. They don't care. God can't use you. What are you doing preaching the gospel? Every missionary hears the same voice. We need your voices. We need your voices to to ring out. If this sounds self-serving, the model is Paul. The apostle Paul is humbling himself and asking for prayer. Would you please pray for those who are in the ministry? We need it. We aren't too proud to say it. We need it. We need it desperately in times like this. And we know that you can do it. And I know that many of you do. In fact, every Sunday morning here at Highlands, you're welcome. Every Sunday morning at Highlands, before the first service in room 209, there's a a faithful group of people that gather up in 209 and pray for you. Every Sunday morning. That's all they do. They meet and they pray for our worship and our fellowship and our time together as a church family every Sunday morning. They're they're up there. Second floor, 209. You're welcome. We need that. I was noticing a, uh, a friend of mine just this Saturday, I noticed he was, he posted on his website and through Twitter, um, he said, I'm in the process. He sent this to his congregation. I thought, this is a great idea. He said, I'm in the process of preparing my sermon right now. Would you please pray for me? Sent that to his entire congregation. This is a very accomplished guy. You know how the first and possibly greatest revival in American history started? The Great Awakening? Jonathan Edwards talks about it. 
in his letters and other places. He said it started with the young people. Where are the young people? They're everywhere in here. High school and college-age young people gathering together and praying for the ministry of the Word. That was the first that you don't have any kind of evangelism or awakening or revival without prayer. It begins with prayer, and everybody can do it. And we need it. We all need it. Secondly, word. What is the content of this proclamation? At the same time, pray for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ, to declare the gospel. There's a content to this, the good news of Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ comes to save sinners, that doors would be open, minds would be open, hearts would be open to the reality that the essence of sin is us substituting ourselves for God and the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for us, putting himself where only we deserve to be, on the cross. Pray that the doors would be open for that, for God's word. But secondly, look what he says about our words. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to give an answer. This is just the opposite of saying, I hope you burn in hell. You may not be called to a particular full-time office of evangelism. But, let me ask you this question. Where's the church on Monday? Where's the church on Tuesday? Where's the church on Thursday? Where's the church on Saturday? A church is not a building. We have a church building, and we have a church. It's you. It's in the cubicle. cubicle. It's It's in the office. It's on the field. It's in the car. You have opportunities. You know, whenever I go somewhere, it's such a blessing when people don't know I'm a pastor. And as soon as they found out I'm a a pastor, everything changes. And it takes me 45 minutes to convince them that I'm a normal person. Well, maybe I'm not a normal person, but you don't look normal either. (laughs) Who's normal? I don't know. But it takes me, once they find, oh, oof. Now I've got to go around and can convince them that I can... You know, I'm going to say this. I said this in the first service. I might as well say it out loud. Some of you know it. Here it is. I'm walking out on the limb and maybe on a twig. I like to ride motorcycles. You thought I was going to say something really bad. <laughs> no true confessions up here. Um, um, I like to ride motorcycles. Sorry. Uh, uh, and, and I, every section of this church, there's somebody that rides a motorcycle. I see you. And I know it's dangerous. I know all that. But, but riding motorcycles has taken me places literally I never thought I'd go. And when you're hanging out in the Harley shop with a guy that just looks like he walked out of the 60s, you're thinking, this is good for me. 
and it is. The long hair and the beards and the, and then the other, you know, what is it for you? What is it for you? What situations are you in where you have the opportunity to, to do what he says here? To talk to people, to respond to their questions. Are you putting yourself in a place to respond? Are you putting yourself in a place to react? Are you putting yourself in a place that's approachable? Or are you just avoiding those people? Yes, we live in the South, but things are changing and you know about those people. I love what one writer, the the piece of advice that one writer gives in interpreting this Uh, let your speech be gracious, seasoned with salt. He calls it the ministry of small talk. And sometimes as Christians, we belittle that. We want to go right in and talk about the atonement, justification by faith, the second coming, prophecy conference, you know, all and on and on. Listen to what he says about the ministry of small talk. You can pray and you can do this. You can do this. Most people, most of the time, are not in a crisis. They're getting kids off to school. They're deciding what to have for dinner. They're dealing with the daily complaints of work associates, watching TV, watching the news, making small talk talk over coffee. If we avoid small talk, we abandon the very field in which we have been assigned to work Most people's lives are not lived at the cutting edge of crucial issues. Most of us, most of the time, are engaged in simple routine tasks. And small talk is the natural language. If all we do in our conversations is manipulate people into responding to our agendas, we do not take them seriously where they live in the ordinary, in the everyday. Nor are we likely to become aware of those tiny little shoots of grace that the Lord might be allowing to grow in their lives. And and here it is. We need to cultivate conversational humility. what, 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 What is that? He says, I don't want to be misunderstood. I'm not advocating mindless cliches. What I intend is that we simply be present, attentive, respectful, convinced that the Holy Spirit goes before us in all of our conversations. You believe that? Convinced that the Holy Spirit goes before us in all of our conversations. Speech, talk that's hospitable, that's warm that's inviting, that's open, that's approachable, that encourages others to ask questions. The ministry of small talk. Giving people an open door to ask, to talk, to talk about the gospel, to talk about Jesus. Finally, walk. This is very clear. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. 
Uh, G.K. Chesterton once said, the greatest argument against Christianity is Christians. The greatest argument for Christianity is, is Christians. Be wise in your conduct, in your attitude, in your interactions with non-Christians and be sensitive to what God might call, be calling you to do in circumstances. Let's get practical. Anybody play a sport? Anybody spend any time in a gym or a field? Years ago, I used to coach Little League every year with a, with a good friend of mine. And I'll never forget this. He just consistently made people angry. But there was another guy out there, another coach, who also made people angry, and he would get thrown off the field on a, on a regular basis. This, guy, this was a guy that was in a, in a ministry in town, and he was getting thrown off the baseball field all the time. And then there was another one, and he upset people, but the reason he did that is because he would, he would play every young boy at every different position, no ma- at any different point, point, point in the game. He would play anybody at any point in the game. And every, everybody got to play. Everybody got to play every position. And there were certain people that were mad, but I'm telling you, it's still, there are still people that talk about that simple little example of fairness. And people still talk about that. Now, I, look, I know as it gets older and you play high school and college, you can't do that, but you can do it in Little League. You can do it. Ooh, boy. I really am going out on a twig. We get... I'm going to go right off the twig. We, we get way too serious, way too early about some of this stuff. I played sports. My son played sports. My son won the state championship pitching. I know. We get way too serious, way too soon about some of this stuff. And this man stood out and said, everybody's going to play. Simple. But Hard at the same time. Anybody here a student? I'll never forget when I was in college standing next to a friend of mine in a professor's office. And that professor, I'll never forget this, and this professor looked at this guy, we're both Christians, looked at him and said, you know, I really appreciate your Christian witness. And he kind of stepped back, how did you know? I noticed. I noticed. I'll never forget that he didn't share the gospel with him, which would have been great. He didn't push himself on. He was a a man of integrity and hard work, an example. And that professor noticed and was really impacted by it. I don't know where the professor stood spiritually, but he noticed and pointed it out. My friend was, was shocked. Anybody driving a carpool? Oh, gosh. Anybody driving a carpool? I can, tell, I can tell this on my wife. I have permission. Uh, Cindy was driving in a carpool one day, and the kids were young, and she slammed on the brakes. And our little son Harrison in the back said, Mom, is that another idiot on the road? Uh... 
Did your father teach you that? <laughs> Another idiot on the wall. Oh man, that hits close to home. I won't even ask you how you drive. Simple stuff. Real stuff. Daily stuff. Ordinary stuff. I'm convinced that that's what Paul, Paul is talking about here. You know, you make about seven or eight or nine or ten big decisions in your life. The rest of the decisions, thousands of them are little. And those are the decisions that form your character. Yes, you, you know, where to work, where to go to school, where to get married. But these little decisions that you make every day, hundreds of them, that's what shows who you are and that's what forms your character. Anybody here have a job? We need more jobs, but I know most of you have jobs or moving toward jobs. I had a friend in the Air Force. And uh, he was a strong Christian. And he was there for his buddies. And his buddies called him Lips. He had these big puffy lips and they kind of made fun of him. But he was always there. He was the designated driver. Where did they go when there was a crisis? Where did they go when something difficult came up? They'd go to him immediately. He was there. He was there. He was always there for them. How is it possible? At the end of the day, at the end of the sermon, <laughs> how is it possible to live like this? Maybe you're feeling guilty. Maybe you're feeling a little overwhelmed. How is it possible? A few years ago, Roy Firestone used to do these interviews with athletes, and he interviewed two basketball players. Some of you will remember their names. They both played for the Houston Rockets. One of them, uh, his, his name was Hakeem Olajuwon, and the other one was a guy named Charles Barkley. And out of the blue, he asked this question, you guys think you're going to heaven? You guys think you're going to heaven? Olajuwon is a Muslim, and he said, my goal is to try to make it to the end of my life having done more good things than bad things. Charles Barkley said, it's going to be a close vote. <laughs> some of you are Downton Abbey fans, probably very few, but some of you know who that is, what, what that is. It's a series about a, a family in, in England in the early 20th century, and there's all kinds of crazy stuff that, that goes on. But at one scene, a young woman's future husband has gone off to war. And she's obviously very concerned. She loves him deeply. Gone off to World War I. And she's not much of a religious person or a Christian, and she decides that she's going to pray. And so she kneels. She, just before bed, she kneels beside her bed, and she prays. Dear Lord, I don't pretend to have much credit with you, but if you are there, and if I've ever done anything good, I beg you to keep him safe. She doesn't get it. But that's our default position. We want to begin by bargaining with God, by making a deal. There's no deal-making with God. 
There's no deal-making with God. Paul gives us the answer earlier in this, in this chapter, in, in the previous chapter, in chapter 3, verse 2. Set your minds on things above, not on things that are of this earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. If you are praying, Lord, help me to better myself. Help me to accomplish more. That's not it. That's not it. But if you're praying, understanding that Jesus Christ came freely with great mercy and great love to stand in your place and take what you deserve. Take the punishment that you deserve and be completely obedient to God in your place. If you can pray, Lord, I don't claim my goodness. I claim his. I don't claim my righteousness. I claim his. I don't claim my sacrifice. I claim his. So free me from my anxiety and my worry and my selfishness and my sin to show that to a watching world. Free me from my anxiety, my worry, and my anxiousness and my selfishness and my sin to show people grace and mercy and love. We're about to sing it. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. My sin has left a crimson stain. He has made me white as snow. Nothing in my hands I bring simply to the cross. I cling naked come to thee for dress. Lord, use me as I, as I pray. As I pray that doors would be open for the word. And as I seek to walk in the light of God, being conformed to the image of Jesus, we know that Jesus said, this is my body, broken, given for you. This is my blood, shed, sacrificed for you. Let's pray. Lord, we know that as we seek to be faithful, our hope is on nothing less than Jesus' blood and Jesus' righteousness. We pray that when we set our minds and our hearts on things above, we would recognizing, we would recognize that we're not making ourselves uh, useless. We're making ourselves useful because we recognize who we are. Lord, we know, we know that we can't ever know who we are until we know who he is. We can't ever know what we're supposed to do until we know and understand and grasp and love what he has done for us. Lord, we pray that we would go out in all of our situations and circumstances and tell people about the meaning and message of Jesus. Make ourselves available. 
engage in conversational humility, looking for opportunities to tell people about Jesus and to show people about Jesus, to show who he is. And Lord, as we come to the table, Lord, I want to pray that you'd meet us here in a special way today. Meet us. Meet us at this table. Lord Jesus, we pray in your name. Amen.